For the week of December 6th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Just uh, getting over a cold here, so forgive the raspiness. And the gang is all here together this week after a week-long break for the holiday. With me in D.C. as well, back from a farm in Virginia, is Catherine Hamilton. She's partner at 38 North Solutions, a clean energy-focused public policy consulting firm. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed Thanksgiving. I'm a, I'm vegetarian, but I, I managed to fill up on the side dishes, which in Virginia are killers. Oh, they're killers everywhere, I think. And in New York, um, back on the back after a Thanksgiving rest in Kentucky, I believe, is Jigger Shaw, an energy futurist and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, how was Kentucky? It was awesome, as you guys. Uh... As you guys know, there's a lot of beautiful country back um, in the middle of the middle of the country. So, and we're all good to go. I don't have any major liquids near me. Yesterday, we tried to record this show, and I dumped an entire thing of water on my uh, my plugs, and my computer died, and we lost the entire show. So we're going at this again. Is everyone free of liquids? <laughs> I'm liquid free. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so we're not going to be talking about Virginia or Kentucky or New Hampshire, where I was staying in Thanksgiving, but we're going to try something a little different and break our stories down by geography and look at clean energy markets around the world making headlines. First, we're going to look at the German renewables experience. There is a lot of debate about whether Germany is a wild success story or a cautionary tale, and we'll try our best to answer what exactly we can learn from Germany. Then we'll travel across the world and look at how Japan is faring more than two years after the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. And finally, we'll come back to North America, where the Canadian province of Ontario is on its way to phasing out coal. We'll look at how that's going and chew on some of the problems with Ontario's feed-in tariff. All right, first stop in our world tour, Germany. Everyone agrees Germany is a renewable energy powerhouse, but not everyone agrees on how that's benefited the country. The web is littered with conflicting opinion pieces on the German experience, some claiming the country's aggressive promotion of renewables is an oncoming economic disaster, and some saying those concerns are far overblown, if not totally false. So what are we to believe? Uh, Let's start with the country's solar industry first, which Germany is very well known for. With 400 megawatts of solar capacity for every million people, and about 36 gigawatts of capacity installed, which is you know, more than a third of total global capacity, Germany is by far the leader in installations. And this has democratized the power sector there, along with distributed wind, um, but some claim it's driving power prices sky high. Germany's power price is 35 cents a kilowatt hour, one of the highest in the world, uh, and people are worried that the promotion of renewables is going to drive that even higher. So, Jigger, let's kind of break down what's happened in solar First, uh, we'll go into the price impacts, but give me a sense for what you think about the impact of solar, both positive and negative in Germany as it's ramped up that market. Well, the biggest positive, I think, is the fact that we've reached very large penetrations of solar in a country that's industrialized like Germany and have seen no negative impacts and so or no significant negative impacts. More importantly, I think people were talking about how you needed to add all this safety equipment and upgrade all the existing infrastructure to to be able to handle 
this penetration of solar, and that just hasn't been in a, been the case in a country that we all trust, um, like Germany. So what you're saying is that the grid did not explode as uh, solar meets sometimes upwards of 50 or 60 percent of capacity in the middle of the day. Well, and in places in Bavaria, it's 100 percent of the capacity, right? Because in Germany, um, if you split up the country a third, a third, a third in terms of, you know, the top top third, the middle third, and the bottom third, the bottom third is Bavaria, and that's where the vast majority of all the solar power is. So if you're generating 50 percent of the whole country's load from solar right now during sunny days in the middle of the day, um, you're up above 100 percent in Bavaria. Catherine, do you agree with Jigger that this reliability issue is one of the biggest that we can learn from Germany? Yes. I mean, I think that they're the the cool thing is that they're proving is that there's not an issue with reliability, that what's happening now is um, an evolution in the business model and in the pricing structure, not in the actual technology implementation. Yeah, we see a lot of the utilities losing massive amounts of revenue. Germany is toying with a capacity market to allow uh fossil fuel plants to bid into forward markets in order to keep them running. So it it seems to be a power structure issue rather than reliability. Yeah, and the Social Democrats and Christian Democrats came up with sort of a a deal that um, isn't going to be received positively by everybody. Certainly the Greens are going to be having demonstrations about it. But basically it would add more surcharges, grid charges to solar, move, shift to more of a quota model, again, open up this capacity market, as you mentioned. give some safety to offshore wind, which is mostly owned by the utilities, and then cap onshore wind for only the best locations. Um, and in addition, efficiency uh, retrofit programs are pretty much gone gone from the whole scheme. And I think that's going to anger a lot of people. But in a way, this is the evolution of the business model. And I know Jigger has some opinions about uh, about why that's important. I mean, it's a great point, Catherine. I mean, I, I you know, I think that you see this in the U.S. as well, where there's a divergence between the environmentalists who are really looking for mandates that mandate us getting to this exact point um, in law and the clean tech entrepreneurs who are saying, look, you know, as long as we get to some sort of critical mass, we really do think that our products um, and our our know-how can stand on its own and we can actually, you know, win on a level playing field. And I think that's where you're seeing some divergence. I mean, I think that the changes that they're looking at making in Germany are actually quite fair. And given where the economics are of energy efficiency and power and all these other things, like for instance, on the onshore wind thing, you might actually see people starting to tear down a lot of those old windmills from 2000, 2003, and repower all of those machines with machines that are five times larger and, and, and more efficient. I've seen a lot of conflicting reports on this compromise between Angela Merkel's party, the Christian Democratic Union, and the Social Democrats. Some people are saying it's a major success and a very fair compromise, as you said, Jigger. And the Green groups, <clears throat> the Green groups are calling it a complete disaster. I mean, why such a major difference? Well, I'm not saying that I actually think that the compromise is a good one. I just think that sometimes that we can diverge as clean tech entrepreneurs versus environmentalists because I think that the reason the environmentalists hate it is that they basically have to rely on the marketplace to see if it'll succeed. Whereas the clean tech entrepreneurs, I think, see it and say, well, they didn't make what we're doing illegal. They just said that we're now having a level playing field. And given how large our industry is, we can deal with a level playing field. Well, I think there's also an issue of 
trying to save the utilities over there and the utilities are trying to come up with whatever ways they can. And if they can levy more charges for, for not using the grid, they'll try to do that. So I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of this, uh, what's going on in Arizona that's, that we're seeing in Germany as well. And the outcome if the free Democrats had stayed in power would be to try to kill the renewable energy law altogether. So this compromise while criticized by a lot of green groups, which actually still sets a target of 60% renewables by 2035, seems to be a good one, all things considered. Yeah, I, I actually think it's not so bad. And, and, and the other thing that's interesting to me about Germany, and, the, and then it feeds into the, the Japan segment we're going to do next, is is just this um, this misinformation campaign on the coal side in Germany where even the economist actually you know uh, jumped in with two feet when the data is completely not true yes Germany used a little bit more coal in 2011-2012 but they're still on track to phasing out much of their coal capacity over the next 10 years and I, I just don't see how it was you know allowable for a major publication like the economist to sort of just get their facts wrong well it's not just the economist it's a lot of uh, folks here in the U.S. I mean, people point to the ramp up, the short-term ramp up in Germany's coal use, as uh, a potential flaw in renewables, and they claim that because Germany is phasing out nuclear and ramping up renewables, it now needs to depend on coal. But as uh, Craig Morris, who's a renewables expert, uh, an American based in Germany, who does a lot of great translation of reports there in Germany. He pointed out that most of the plants that have come online recently had permits as early as 2005, and um, others were started in 2009. And then since the phase-out was announced of nuclear, there have been six coal plants actually abandoned. So the the picture is definitely a lot different than, than some have painted it here in the U.S. Yeah, and the efficiencies of the plants are far different, too. Well, I know, and and just just so that our listeners know, Amory Levins has written an extraordinary piece on this, and so everyone should look up Rocky Mountain Institute's um, uh, website. And he, I think, he's done the best debunking of of this whole coal myth in in Germany. Yeah, I'll post a link to that on our podcast page, so people can look for that. Now, what do you guys make of the increase in electricity prices? I mean, clearly, renewables, the feed-in tariff, have had an impact, and we see some of the highest rates in the world in Germany and the highest rates in Europe. So how do we factor in where renewables fit into that increase? Well, look, I mean, the feed-in tariff law was specifically designed with the industrial customers exempted from paying um, any premium from the feed-in tariff law because they didn't want them to, you know, cry foul and be less competitive because of it. Um, and so the the even though Audi, BMW, and all those guys actually have solar on their buildings, they're not paying the premium for it, um, which is pretty ironic. And so the residential guys are shouldering the burden, which is why the cost went up. But this is one of my major criticisms that I've been making consistently since sort of 07, 08, which is that Germany installed too much solar too fast when stuff was expensive. They would have gotten the same level of cost reduction in their balance of systems and training and their contractors, et cetera, by doing less. And what they should have done was actually put a volumetric reduction in their feed-in tariff so that for every 1,000 megawatts, let's say, that they installed, the feed-in tariff went down by 7%. Instead of what they did do was do it on a calendar basis, which made it such that people could just jam 7,000 megawatts into the program and you know try to bankrupt the feed-in tariff program. I don't really pretend to, to know the ins and outs of everything that causes rate increases here in the U.S., but there are so many factors. 
And a lot of people here in the U.S., when they opine about Germany, say that the feed-in tariff has been the, the main driver of this. But in fact, this German consultancy brain pool points out that the FIT only made up about 13% of retail price increases, which I think is pretty interesting. And then this... <clears throat> This uh, exemption of industrial customers actually made up a quarter of the retail price increases because they've added in more industrial customers over the years, and therefore that's pushed the cost on to, to residential ratepayers. So interesting there, and then there's probably a whole host of other factors that contribute to this that people just aren't identifying. But I think it, I just think that good public policy matters here because if you talk to most of the countries around the world who want to replicate the renewable energy story, they want to replicate the California renewable energy story where we are going to accomplish the exact same amount of penetration of renewable energy as Germany already has by 2017. And we're going to do it at about 70 to 80 percent less subsidy cost than Germany did. And so you see South Africa, India, other places – wanting to try to copy the good policy lessons of California over the good policy lessons of Germany. So I feel like the good policy lesson, though, in in a world that is devoid of politics, which doesn't exist, is that, you know, you set a goal for what you want to achieve, a long-term goal, you put policies in place, and then as you start implementing those, you're able to tweak or make course corrections depending on what happens as you begin to implement and see, you know, see what the economics are and see what the, if there are any operational issues. And so Germany is actually a really good example for that of how of the process. And, um, you know, and, and I, so I don't think it's a bad example. And, every, you know, every place is different. We're going to talk about two places that are totally different. But I think, you know, in the in the perfect world, you do exactly that. You set goals, you implement policy, and then you're able to make corrections as you implement. Yeah. And Germany was also a first mover. And, you know, one of the first countries to really deploy a feed-in tariff at such a broad level. So it seems natural that they would make mistakes that, you know, markets here in the U.S. are not making. Well, but just let – but I just want to be crystal clear about this. Like in 2008, when I met with the German government and many other folks did too, we begged them to put in the best practices from California. And what would have happened in 2008 is module prices would have gone down substantially. Instead, they left their ridiculously high feed-in tariff pl- – uh, prices in place in 2008, which then caused their market to do five, six, seven thousand megawatts worth of solar, which crowded out all of the emerging markets that wanted to use solar. So it was horrible policy that they they went through in 2008, and over 70% of their cumulative solar costs were incurred since 2007. So they could have actually avoided the worst expensive years and still done all of the wonderful things in terms of reducing the cost of solar and that kind of thing. Um, it, it really was just blindness on their part in 08. So Jigger, can I ask you a quick question about that though? Was that because of politics? Were there political reasons that they didn't make that course correction? Because you would think that they would be able to do that and, you know, and right the ship a little bit. Yeah, it's the same politics that I face here in the U.S. when we're doing this type of policy and we're going to talk about in Ontario, where, you know, the the solar industry said, why would we accept that? We should just do 
what you know basically you know gives us the most amount of money as opposed to thinking about the long-term viability of the program the long-term viability of markets and so they said well we have the power because we own you know the greens and some of the other like coalition partners and so we're not going to accede to something that will in the long run provide a better more functioning program but there's a conflict here so you typically argue that the solar industry needs to uh, needs to approach this from way over on the left, uh, particularly on the net metering battle, and argue for the most aggressive feed-in tariff policies, or excuse me, the most aggressive net metering policies possible. Um, but at the same time, there are real concerns about the long-term cost impact of net metering, and as we have discussed over and over on this show, how we can uh, figure out how to reformat net metering policies so that they're more fair and, and distribute costs more uh, equitably. So that's what the that's what the solar industry in Germany attempted to do as well, and therefore pushed policy that you say was unsustainable. So how do you reconcile those two things? So what, my co-founder at Sun Edison, Chris Cook, has a great phrase where he says, "Pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered." So I'm happy to stay on the piggish side, but as soon as you become a hog, you you put yourself out there for someone to go slaughter you, and that's what the German solar industry did. So the fact that this compromises where we are right now with in Germany is because of their piggish ways moving into hoggish ways in the 2008 timeframe. We have to find that balance, which is why in that metering, for instance, I've been a huge fan of the value of solar study. I don't think we should go wholesale to value of solar right now, but I think that in the next three to four years, we got to figure out how that's going to play out because you're right, net metering in places like California where we exceed 5% of the total grid might actually you know, end up being too expensive. Let's talk a little bit about the nuclear transition. So Germany wants to close down 17 of its nuclear reactors by 2022, and it looks like that target is still in place after this uh, renewable energy compromise that was recently reached. So that's still underway. Uh, but, of course, that's going to shave off about 18% of uh, power in the, in the country. So this is going to leave kind of a gap. And uh, I'm wondering if you think that renewables can make up for that gap. So you guys saw in California, they just uh, set a target for 1.3 gigawatts of energy storage. I think you're going to see energy storage becoming must, much, much more cost effective um, given the scaling. And that's going to be a big part of the solution in Germany, too. And you're already see seeing it on a distributed level. But I think from on the grid side, you're going to start seeing that as well. Yeah, you know, I think. Well, so so a couple of answers to your question. One is, is that for for government bodies, it is important for them to start planning now for these large-scale transitions. Most of the nuclear power plants in Germany are over 35 to 40 years old. They were only intended to last 35 to 40 years. And so in 2022, they will be roughly at the end of life. And so we're not talking about actually decommissioning these nuclear power plants um, early. So I think that's the first piece. The second piece is Catherine's right. I think that there are a number of technologies that have to be added to renewables, but I think that there's a way to get there. And to me, one of the most groundbreaking reports that I've read in a long time last week was really around the fact that Germany is, is starting to acknowledge uh, this concept of virtual power plants, which I think if that takes hold – will completely undermine the entire argument around baseload power because, I mean, that just means that we can take solar and wind, we can use storage or demand response or load control or things and firm it up and sell it as one block and treat that block as a virtual power plant. So looking at all of this, 
can we say that so jigger you're somewhat critical of how germany has promoted its solar market but still it's seen as a wild success they are by far the solar leader still seen a lot of hiccups what do you make of all of it i mean is germany a success story or a cautionary tale Germany is a huge success story. I mean, unequivocally a huge success story. I think there are always things you could do better. But I think that it's important for us as people who are pushing this and on policy side to recognize that, you know, like one in seven households in Germany gives to Greenpeace. Right. And so they have a very interesting mix of people there. And there's a reason why people are okay with, you know, their electricity rates going up by roughly five cents a kilowatt hour to pay for this feed in tariff. Um, That's not acceptable in most states that I work in in the United States. And so we've got to make improvements to that policy structure to be able to make it palatable in other places around the world. Yeah, it it demonstrates sort of a different place of value for uh, Germany on um, the importance of clean energy and and reductions in greenhouse gases. So um, I feel like we we have pockets of that in the U.S., but overall, we're not there yet. Well, when I look at this debate, you know, this might be a simplistic cop out, but clearly the picture is complicated. So it's no wonder that a lot of people are blaming high electricity prices on renewables. But Here in the U.S., as people start to read through articles and and flesh out this debate, I think it's very clear that a lot of the criticisms about Germany run along the same lines as criticisms uh, against renewables here in the U.S. They claim that renewables are driving up power prices in states with renewable energy targets, when in fact it's a whole host of reasons why power prices are going up. The picture is extremely complicated. There's multiple studies have found that there's no statistical statistically significant impact of renewables on electricity prices in states with targets and so i think it's really important to realize that a lot of the arguments against germany tend to fall along the same political lines uh here in the us when we look at the debate around around renewables um you know and i and i but i do think that obviously renewables are having an impact on energy prices and we can't ignore that, particularly as we scale up markets here in the U.S. And, and we look at the legacy of the, the feed-in tariff there in Germany. And although that impact is probably not as big as opponents claim, we can't really dispute that it has had an impact. But I think when we parse all this out, you know, the German transition is proof that the grid or the economy doesn't get destroyed when you have high penetrations of renewables, you know, even when you try to do it as fast as Germany has. So I would say success story as well. Hey, Stephen, I mean, you're absolutely right on that. But just one thing for our listeners to know in um, the U.S., every single RPS standard in the U.S., except for California, has a maximum cost trigger to it, either 1% or 2% maximum rate increase. We haven't hit any of those triggers in any of the RPSs in the U.S., so, so we have been amazingly effective at keeping the uh, the cost increases from solar, you know, to much lower levels than the Mississippi and coal plant and the Southern Cal uh, Southern Company nuclear plant. All right, so this is a very quick rundown of Germany, and we understand that it's going to be hard for us to cover every element of the story. So. I know we do have some listeners in Germany, and I'd love for them to go add their thoughts in the comments section of the podcast page after they listen to the show. And as we go into Japan and Ontario, I ask the same of listeners in those areas as well with expertise. So let's go on to our second stop, Japan. 
Over the last two years, Japan has initiated a somewhat painful transition away from nuclear in the wake of the meltdown of the Fukushima power plant. It's now burning more coal and natural gas to make up for the shutdown of nuclear facilities. Uh, at the same time, however, the solar PV market is booming, and the country is also looking to geothermal and demand response to help fill the baseload gap and to meet peaking demand. Um, so what do we make of Germany's post-nuclear energy future? Catherine, flesh out the last couple of years there in Japan. Um, it's, a, again, a cautionary tale to some when we look at phasing out nuclear power, but a lot of people in the renewables community and the smart grid community see it as this massive opportunity. What's your opinion or assessment of how Japan has emerged from Fukushima so far? Yeah, it's totally the land of unforeseen circumstances. So, you know, here's a country that, first of all, you know, if any kind of modeling scenario is just blown out of the water by what the challenges that Japan faces, where, you know, one half of the country is on a different frequency from the other half of the country. So there's there's an issue about getting power back and forth. You know, 30 percent of their electricity uh, resource has completely been shut down with uh, with the tsunamis. And and public opinion there is not going to allow that to come back. I mean, you, they're just going to take nuclear out of the picture for right now. Now, they had already started, um, you know, for several years developing uh, feed-in tariff schemes, renewables, efficiency. So they had started that. And suddenly, with 30% of their electricity source gone, they had to really ramp that up. And they did it in a way, of course, that create has created a bit of a gold rush. There have been some real problems in, you know, approval of solar versus the feasibility of actually installing it in some of these instances. And so what they're facing right now is this, you know, having to import at the cost of three and a half billion dollars a year, coal and liquid liquefied natural gas um, to, to try to make up for some of that resource. Um, now, that's probably going to change over time. But but the situation now is they're just looking at everything they can to power that nation. And and as you said, there's a big demand response program, a smart city, smart grid program, um, in addition to this huge solar market. Let's go into the solar market first. So it's growing at a ridiculous rate this year. It looks like probably six gigawatts are going to be installed according to um, our analysts at GTM Research, which is like a 300% growth rate over last year. Uh, Japan could actually represent somewhere around 15% of global demand over the next five years. Um, but at the same time, we see around 18 gigawatts in the pipeline because they have a feed-in tariff at 43 cents a kilowatt hour, which has brought in a lot of shoddy developers and at the same time, probably going to cost Japan a lot of money. Jigger, as we talked about Germany and looked at the, the lessons from their expensive feed-in tariff, what do you think about Japan's emerging experience with a, such a high feed-in tariff? Well, I think the first thing is to say that like, I think having these high feed-in tariffs for the very first phase is a good thing. I mean, I don't think they should have done it for six gigawatts worth, but it's a good thing because you want to create that feeding frenzy. You want, you know, folks who are calcified and, you know, have a lot of inertia associated with them to jump in with both feet, right? And so now the, I, the thing that J Japan has to do is exactly what I said before, which is they've got to figure out a way to get a volumetric reduction in their feed-in tariff. Every thousand gigawatts that gets approved, the you know feed-in tariff rate goes down by x and then you know basically within 10 reductions or 20 reductions 
you basically get to grid parity. Um, Japan has very high electricity rates already. I mean, they pay over 20 cents a kilowatt hour already, and they have roughly the same amount of sunlight as sort of like Maryland. Um, so they, they, they've got decent sun, and they've got um, really high expensive electricity rates. So solar is pretty cost-effective without major subsidies for retail rates there. So the question is really how do they get their industry to get world-leading world you know, costs and, and I think a volumetric reduction would help them. If this feed-in tariff program continues at the current rate, uh, will it drive up electricity rates enough so that we see, actually see some pushback against solar and possibly a change in opinion on nuclear? Do, do you think that that will actually have an impact? I actually think it won't because um, there's going to be so much investment in Japan. This is a huge business opportunity, um, and everybody's looking at it as this. And I was just noticing the Department of Commerce has a big um, forum next week of businesses where they're going to talk about renewable energy financing, rooftop solar, transmission capacity, storage, smart grid, DG, and efficiency. All of this about how do we do business in Japan. I think this is good for their economy. I think the issue about solar, about bringing in the shoddy developers or developers who weren't ready, I think they need to get through that and actually install solar because if you just have 18 gigawatts approved and it's not actually getting installed, that becomes an issue. So once they can kind of uh, get through the those issues, um, then I think that's that's going to be a huge opportunity. This is yet another example of what we talk about regularly, which is that logic has nothing to do with this stuff, right? I mean, you know, like, yes, I'm a mechanical engineer. I think that nuclear power, as, you know, as Japan has generally built it across our country, is fairly safe. Um, but let's be honest, right? This Fukushima nuclear power plant is still leaking radiation, I mean, this notion that like, well, we sort of it's two years on. It's done. It's not done. They still have to try to build an ice wall to figure out how to get the leaking radioactive waste from going into the water stream. And so now they can't eat any fish that they catch along their coastline, which, you know, fishing is a huge industry in Japan that's been negatively impacted. We're now seeing impacts of a lot of that ref, uh, garbage, but now like some of that radioactivity floating all the way over to San Francisco. I mean, I, I just think that we are in a huge mess here, and the public has every right to say, look, until you guys figure out what to do with Fukushima, we don't want to turn everything else on. And it could take three to four decades to fully decommission the plant. This is a long-term project. It'll take just a year to remove all the fuel rods from the plant. So the big question becomes, beyond this safety issue and beyond the the uh, visceral impact of the the meltdown, what happens to Japan over the next decade? So Japan came out of the Warsaw talks uh, saying that it was going to change its carbon reduction targets. It previously had targets of cutting CO2 emissions 25% compared to 1990 levels uh, by 2020. And of course, with only 3% renewables penetration, it was going to rely mostly on nuclear for that. But now it can't rely on nuclear. So it says now that it will release 3% more CO2 in 2020 compared to 1990. Uh, Enviro groups, when just looking at those targets, have been fairly critical of Japan. 
But, uh, you know, let's give the country some credit. They're going through a major crisis here and attempting to go through a major transition immediately. Uh, However, this does raise some concerns about one of the leading uh, carbon emitters, one of the largest industrial uh, countries, uh, and how they fit into the role around uh, carbon reduction agreements moving forward past 2015. Yeah, they are the fifth largest emitter behind China, U.S., India, and Russia. Um, they did commit at Warsaw to giving $16 billion of pu- private and public funds to developing countries to try to help ameliorate climate change. But I think what this points to is that Japan is going to be um, absolutely a nexus for really interesting technologies that – um, and, and experimentation, because I think they're willing to do that. The demand response folks, um, Energy Pool working with Schneider, they're um, they're looking at demand response to to not only mitigate peaks, but also to help reserve, you know, become part of reserve capacity uh, for their reliability issues. I mean, there's going to be some really interesting stuff going on over there. And I think it's a great, as I had said, it was a great opportunity. Yeah, I think, look, I mean, after the nuclear power plant disaster, um, Japan took all their existing power generation assets, which included coal, natural gas, diesel engines, and ran them all um, to to uh, to make up for the shortfall. And so their emissions profile has gone up, and their fuel bill has gone way up. My sense is is that Japan has the knowledge base to put in huge amounts of solar, offshore wind. I mean, they had that huge offshore wind announcement this last few months, and so um, I think they have the ability to get back on track. Um, to decarbonize their their um, electricity sector by 2020. But it, it points to the challenges that people like Catherine and yourself and myself have in this sector in that, um, you know, with Germany being such a huge success story, Japan went into Warsaw saying, we don't have confidence in the technologies available to us to deploy to do anything more than experiment with them. That we don't believe that we can actually build them in a way that gives us confidence that we can still reach our emissions goal reduction by 2020. I actually have confidence that they can actually reach it, but they don't have confidence, which is very telling. So you think that this suite of technologies, efficiency, demand response, and renewables deployment can get them back on track for their emissions reductions targets, their initial emissions reductions targets, or where they were before Fukushima? Well, I mean, you know, I'm if I, if I was to bet, I'd be willing to bet that basically that they'll get back to the emissions profile pre the Fukushima um, disaster by 2020. So all of the increase in coal, natural gas, diesel usage that's happened will be erased by 2020 and completely replaced by renewables and demand response efficiency, et cetera. But my sense is that we can beat that. I mean, the thing that Germany shows to us is the amount of total volume that Germany installed in terms of renewables, the vast majority of it happened from 2006 to today, the vast majority of it, like 95, 98% of it. And so you can actually make a radical change in your electricity grid within six or seven years. I mean, that's what Germany really proved. And I think that Japan can do that. And Japan has a willingness to do it. But I think it's very telling in many of the countries we go to around the world that even if they're willing to do it and and can do it, they're just not that confident in themselves and our technologies. I just I I feel like Japan is sort of uh, somewhat risk averse and they've been slammed with something that was 
completely devastating and will be devastating for generations to come. So when you look at what the what METI, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry has done and what the energy plan that they've put together, which is really heavily focused on new technologies, you know, they say, let's look at this every three years. Let's tweak it. Let's let's, you know, figure out how we how we move forward, do a full analysis in 2020. I feel like they are on the right path. It's just that um, you know, they were really slammed, and they're trying to come up with whatever they can. All right. Well, let's go back to North America for our third stop in the world tour to the Canadian province of Ontario. Ontario is in the news this week for its phase-out of coal power, which is planned for completion in 2014. Uh, the province has also made headlines in recent years for its aggressive and ultimately troubled feed-in tariff program as well its, as its domestic content requirements that were struck down as being uncompetitive. So what can we learn from Ontario's rocky experience? Um, back in 2009, actually, when I was really focused on a lot of the emerging feed and tariff programs uh, beyond Germany, uh, I said that Ontario's experience with FITS would likely influence America's thinking on the policy. And there have been a lot of problems with interconnection issues and as in Germany and other areas with really high tariff rates and not a proper step down. Um, so because of that, the conversation around FITS has stagnated here in the U.S. Uh, with very, people, very few people talking about them as a broad policy choice. People are still talking about them on a very local level, but the conversation has shifted dramatically. Uh, of course, Ontario has not played the ultimate role in that, but it was a major piece. Um, and a lot of people in the U.S. were looking to Ontario as it established its program. So, Jigger, give us a little perspective on Ontario's initial attempts to roll out this feed-in tariff and particularly boost solar and where you think that got them today in light of what we've talked about in Germany. Yeah, I mean, I think that Ontario and Germany are great case studies where Ontario is clearly one of the most progressive provinces in Canada on this issue, you know, probably even more progressive than British Columbia. And um, and you see what they sort of went about doing, you know, Paul Geip and his folks basically tried to replicate Germany, which was put in high feed in tariffs, leave them in place, doesn't matter what it costs. It's all about you know getting renewables out in the marketplace. Because they didn't have this proper step down, there was a huge backlash, not only from the um, the utilities and the traditional players, but also from politicians. I mean, the 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 premier of um, of Ontario, I think, you know, like sort of lost his job, and then a new person came in, etc. And so this is a third person who came in who basically decided to finish all of this decarbonization work. So I think that, you know, in terms of the political stability of the program in Germany, that wasn't able to be maintained in Ontario um, because it was just too rich, and you know, people just revolted against how rich it was. And so it's a cautionary tale around um, why you need volumetric reductions. You know, again, as they did with the solar in Japan, where they had all these projects that had not been, you know, vetted, that that you know were were not necessarily accepted by the communities. They just took them all, and then it ends up that the permitting process itself, the bureaucracy, takes two to three years to get these things done. So it kind of created this huge backlog. There were also no provisions. You know, one of the rules was 
Hydro One, which manages 98% of their TND system and the whole rural system up there, basically had to take anything that was offered to them um, until their, you know, until basically the capacity of their lines is filled. And and it didn't kind of account for grid balancing and, you know, do you need storage? Because you may have been able to do a lot more if you were able to think of things a little more holistically. Their goal was, look, we want to get to 100% emission-free energy by 2030. They're already at about 80%. And we're going to do this thing that is huge. We're going to bring as much as we can in. And and the issue, is, as Jigger says, you know, they kind of needed some course correction in the way. Um, but, you know, they've reduced their CO2 emissions by 90% from 2000. I mean, they have the, – the increase in renewables went from 25 to 47%. I mean, they have done a huge amount toward their goals. Well, in order to address those problems, they actually recently – uh, change the feed-in tariff program around uh, projects less than 500 kilowatts are going to continue getting the feed-in tariff. And it looks like there's still going to be about 900 megawatts uh, of solar in the pipeline. But uh, a lot of the projects have been re- retroactively added into a bidding process so, rather than a feed-in tariff. So they've made some big changes. Jigger, do you think that this change from a feed-in tariff to a a bidding process is the appropriate course correction? I hate bidding processes. I mean, I I just – and the reason for that is because it basically, you know, like NYSERDA does this all the time in New York, which is why, you know, like New York has been such a backwater in terms of, you know, solar markets. Um, it creates all of these sort of like, you know, pent up demand. And then it doesn't really, it doesn't really um, encourage people to be entrepreneurial. You really want an open window program where, where people go and they close a customer and then they go to the window and say, okay, here's my rebate paperwork. I'd like to uh, do something. You don't want to have to go to your customer and say, well, we're going to have to go into this bid process, a bid process. We just missed it. So the next one's in six months. And so, yeah, no, I'm not a big fan of bid processes. But I I do think that, you know, on on the Ontario side, I do think we should give them a tremendous amount of credit for decarbonizing their um, their grid. I mean, I know that they're mostly hydro already, but the fact they went all the way and decarbonized their grid shows real moral fortitude. And for that, I think they should get huge props. But the nuclear makes up 36% of electricity, hydro is 22%, and gas is 28%. Wind is only 5%, and solar is negligible. So as they go toward phasing out coal, one can argue it's very easy for them because of a high amount of nuclear capacity and because they can in, uh, enjoy a lot of hydro resources as well. What do you guys make of that? I mean, people hail this as a miracle that Ontario is phasing out coal. Environmentalists are getting behind this. Al Gore was in Ontario recently and praised Ontario and said that every other country or province or state should try to do this. But Al Gore is not exactly pro-nuclear. And he glossed over the fact that nuclear makes up a huge amount of their electricity mix and allows them to do this. Look, I think we should be pro-nuclear. I'm pro-nuclear, right? So it's not that I'm anti-nuclear. It's just that I'm more pro-marketplace, right? So if if the nuclear power industry can figure out new innovations like small modular reactors or the things, fantastic. I'd be for building new nuclear power plants. But, you know, if you have an existing nuclear power plant that's been around for 30 or 40 years and it's already paid off, yeah, I think you should probably keep it running until it's end of its useful life and when the engineers say that you know it's not worth repairing anymore um, because it's a good thing to keep it going. But I think for most of us, we don't see nuclear as a real solution by 2050 just because the technology isn't 
cost effective enough to be able to deploy at scale by 2050. And so we're going to have to do renewables, storage, demand response, load control. And the beauty of exponential growth, which is what we've been shown in Germany and now we're being shown in Japan, is that Ontario could very rapidly have solar make up 20 plus percent of their energy if they wanted to. Yeah, and I don't think you look at one model. So we've talked about three different countries here, and they have really different, you know, wind regimes and solar regimes and different technology, you know, uh, innovation. And I think that that we need to look at things regionally and say, look, we need to use what's in a region. And that doesn't mean we have to do fossil. It means we can do clean energy. We just use it differently in different areas. All right. Well, we are done. We are back in our homes after our world tour. So let's settle in and tell our listeners something they don't know to end out the show. Uh, Jigger, what do you have for us this week? Well, I think just in terms of exponential growth, uh, Clean Technica and Green Tech Media reported today that um, um, that China is set to hit 10 gigawatts of cumulative solar deployment uh, this year, which is basically exactly the same amount of deployment that the U.S. is expected to hit this year. So um, the power of exponential growth is all around us. And that and Japan's booming market are helping module prices stabilize as well. Yeah, I think it, 2013 was an extraordinary year with solar stock prices going up 140%. So I think you're going to see uh, 2014 be an even better year. Catherine Hamilton, tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so this week the administration um, introduced a bunch of new programs that are going to build on the president's and make good on the president's uh, climate action plan that was announced last summer. Um, one of those is building on the Better Buildings Challenge, which is which is a program that tries to get uh, commercial and industrial buildings to be 20% more energy efficient by 2020. So they're expanding this challenge to multifamily housing. They've got 50 multifamily housing partners, um, which is great because this is dealing a lot more with affordable housing issues. Um, and they're going to try to cut their energy use by 20% in 10 years. And these are not grant programs. These are public-private partnerships. So this is these are you know probably a good way to run um, government programs. They're also launching three new Better Buildings accelerators. One is on energy data to try to um, uh, give building owners access to their energy use data. Uh, performance contracting accelerator to enter into a $1.2 billion worth of performance contracts with utilities and energy service companies. And then the final accelerator is the industrial superior energy performance accelerator, which would um, would provide verification programs for energy efficiency improvements and practices. They're also challenging federal agencies um, to try to enter into more performance contracts. Um, they've, they're already at $2 billion and they're trying to get them back to, to uh, you know, an additional $2.3 Three billion, which are, is a very cost-effective way of getting um, both energy efficiency and renewable energy projects done. So this is, I think, this is heartening. This is great. the The administration is doing what they can given the authority that they have, because Congress won't. All right. Well, I'm going to focus on Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Once again, we have talked about them a number of times on the show. They're in the news again this week because they're hosting their annual summit in D.C. and they're outlining their priorities for the coming year. So um, Alec, of course, drafts this model legislation. Uh, people don't like to call it model legislation because it's such a benign term. They call Alec a bill mill or a dating service for conservative lawmakers. What they do is draft legislation with corporate members and then pitch that legislation to state legislators. 
Um, so anyway, as we all know, Alec has been trying to push legislation in 13 states to kill renewable energy standards, and none of them got passed. And this year, it's turning its focus to, or next year, it's turning its focus to net metering. Um, and actually, this week, the leader of Alec's Energy Task Force called solar PV owners free riders on the system. Uh, and the organization's working with Arizona Public Service and the Edison Electric Institute to craft laws, adding additional charges to net metering or changing the programs. Um, so a lot of people are up to speed on that issue. But what a lot of people uh, don't know is that Alec is, while it seems very powerful on the surface and a lot of people are paying very close attention to them, they have lost a lot of legislative partners and a lot of corporations. So the Guardian reported this week based on new documents that Alec has lost 60 corporations that represent millions of dollars in revenue um, and donations. And they've lost 400 state legislator partners. And those dropouts came over the last year and a half after the the wake after the revelations that Alec helped craft stand your ground legislation, which, of course, became really controversial after the death of uh, Florida teen Trayvon Martin. And now Alec is doing all it can to woo companies back to fix what The Guardian calls a funding crisis. So I think these reports suggest that Alec it maybe is not as powerful as it might seem. So as we look to net metering, that doesn't mean the solar industry should underestimate the organization, but it may be more limited in what it can do than it first appears. I choose to think that what it really means is the renewable energy industry is more powerful than they thought it were. In terms of killing the RES, the anti-RES legislation? Well, and in terms of actually, you know, I don't think Republicans hate us as much as they want us to hate us, particularly in in at the state and local level. I think that's a fair assessment, but at the same time, a lot of this funding crisis came from the stand your ground stuff, not necessary, not energy. Yeah, that's probably true. But you know, the other thing is that whole Gandhi quote, right? Which is first they ignore you, then they laugh at you and then they fight you and then you win. I mean, we're at stage three. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. At the same time, however, Google this year joined Alex technology task force and a lot of activists are really upset at google because they've been a huge promoter of uh renewable energy one of the biggest corporate investors in renewable energy and you know have pushed a progressive climate message but now they're supporting politicians like senator james inhoff who is the leading climate denier in the senate and they're putting money behind alec not for environmental and energy reasons but for technology reasons but still a very contradictory message for a progressive company like google which leads me to believe that we haven't won yet no we're in the third phase we're in the fight they're not ignoring us anymore which is a good thing All right. Well, that is all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, For links to the stories we covered on the show, visit greentechmedia.com and check out the podcast landing page. You can subscribe to the podcast as well. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio, and we've got our RSS feed there for you to integrate into whatever player you like. Uh, Good show this week, Jigger Shaw. Thanks as always. Always a pleasure. And Catherine Hamilton, a pleasure with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, have a good week, guys. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.